Welcome to Health Pulse Podcast. My name is Connor Delaney and I am CEO and President of Cleveland Clinic Florida. Today's episode is about sleep health and pulmonary disease. There's a significant correlation between sleep health and obstructive lung diseases. People with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD and those with asthma have been shown to have worse sleep quality and more sleep related problems when compared to people with other chronic health problems. Insomnia and sleep apnea are commonly encountered in patients with COPD. My special guest for today is Dr. Sam Gurevich with Pulmonary Medicine here at Cleveland Clinic Weston. Dr. Gurevich is a clinical assistant professor of medicine, faculty in pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine at Cleveland Clinic Florida. He provides direct clinical and teaching services in the inpatient and outpatient settings, including critical care medicine, inpatient and outpatient pulmonary consultation, palliative care medicine, and sleep laboratory and clinics. Dr. Gurevich, thank you for joining me. Dr. Connor, thank you so much for having me and uh, for highlighting such an important set of topics. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we're learning gradually how important it is. So I'm really I'm looking forward to our conversation today. So, so Sam, chronic pulmonary disorders are frequently associated with sleep-related irregularities. And patients need to be asked about duration, frequency, severity of sleep symptoms. Uh, the symptoms and relationship to the symptoms of the lung disease should be assessed. And daytime habits that might contribute to insomnia, sleep practices, and possible daytime consequences of sleep problems, including fatigue, sleepiness, and quality of life are all important considerations. So, so let's just start at the basics, um, Sam. What, what is a pulmonary disorder for listeners who, who may not be as familiar with the medical terms? Sure, so pulmonary means relating to the lungs, and the pulmonary disorder is any disease or injury of the lungs or respiratory system that can impact how we breathe. Common breathing disorders include COPD, asthma, lung nodules, bronchiectasis, and there are many more. Great. So, how does a patient get diagnosed then with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease? Maybe what causes it, and then also how, what's the diagnostic process? Sure. So, COPD is a common pulmonary disorder. It's characterized by what we call airflow limitation. That is, when you bring oxygen to the microscopic areas of the lung where it's exchanged for carbon dioxide, you kind of need a highway to get it there. The highways are the bronchi or the airways of the lung. Now, when they get inflamed and plugged up, for example, with, with mucus, you start to have difficulty getting air to the lungs quickly enough to meet your body's demands. People can then develop shortness of breath, chronic cough, and more. Subtypes of COPD include emphysema, chronic bronchitis, and chronic obstructive asthma. Now, these can all be diagnosed with a conversation, a physical exam, along with a special set of breathing tests we call pulmonary function tests. These are safe, non-invasive tests where patients do a set of breathing exercises into a special set of breathing machines. This gives us an objective and quantifiable measure of lung function and is used to diagnose COPD. Okay. That's great. So we, we've done podcasts recently on general health and wellness, um, mm -hmm. and people probably don't think enough about pulmonary wellness and, and keeping their lungs healthy. So what tips can one take to prevent pulmonary disease? 
So, of course, the best way to prevent pulmonary disease and keep your lungs healthy is to avoid exposing them to toxins. The number one toxin exposure in, in this country is, of course, inhalation of cigarettes and other tobacco products. Vaping, exposure to air pollution, and other factors also play a role. This becomes even more important once you've been diagnosed with a pulmonary disease. Along with appropriate treatment, avoiding further exposures is absolutely essential, and it's never too late. The next most important thing you can do to is stay active. The best exercise for the lungs is exercise. When you're moving and, and uh, getting sweaty and getting your heart rate up, you're moving and, and uh, exercising your lungs at the same time. Now, of course, there are individuals who have physical limitations or are bed bound, and a number of other simple devices can also help you exercise your lungs without exercising the rest of your body if you can't. Sam, you mentioned when you're talking there vaping, um, something people are seeing more and seeing around more. And I think many people incorrectly feel that it's it's safer or safe for your lungs. Maybe you could just mention that briefly for listeners. So Connor, you're you're absolutely right. Vaping um, exposes your lungs to a number of uh, different chemicals. Sometimes that can be as harmful, even more harmful than than tobacco. Uh, a lot of times you don't know exactly what you're exposing your lungs to. And in addition to these chronic changes like tobacco products uh, that can cause scarring in the lungs and inflammation in the lungs, there's also a condition where you can have an acute reaction and have severe inflammation in the lungs where you end up in the hospital or in, even in the intensive care unit or worse. So it's really incorrect to think of vaping as a safe alternative. Okay, I think that's an important point to highlight. So thank you Absolutely. for that. Sure. So uh, we mentioned earlier in the discussion the relationship between sleep and health and, and lung function. So can you can you talk a little bit about sleep health and, and talk about why it's so important in relation to this topic? Well, sleep is important because being awake is important, right? Healthy sleep involves making sure we give ourselves enough time to sleep and a safe and comfortable environment. Uh, we tend to take sleep for granted, sacrificing it for work, socializing, or, or worst of all, thinking it's a waste of time. In fact, many important physiologic and cognitive things happen during healthy sleep, including improving our cardiovascular health, our respiratory health, and our mental abilities, such as memory and attention. Good sleep even affects your mood. I think we can all attest to that. If we pull an all-nighter studying or at work, we're a little bit grumpier the next day. Um, good healthy sleep also lowers our risk of heart attacks, of strokes, and something we don't think about, including car accidents. Um, when we're not at our sharpest, not at our best, our reaction times are not as good. Our situational awareness aren't, isn't as good either. And so we're more likely to have a car accident or a workplace-related accident. In the past year, we've also learned from longstanding studies that good sleep even affects our risk of dementia. That's a long list of things that we should all be careful about our sleep patterns about. So, so when somebody comes to see um, physicians in the sleep clinic, can you talk to them about the steps that uh, are undergone and how, how sleep is assessed if you're trying to assess somebody with sleep problems or issues? Sure. Well, as we know, a number of medical conditions can affect the quality of our sleep and vice versa. In sleep clinic, we specialize in disorders like obstructive sleep apnea, abnormal movements in sleep, uh, what we call parasomnias, like sleep eating or acting out your dreams. That actually does happen. Um, we also deal with things like insomnia or difficulty sleeping. 
and other rare disorders like narcolepsy. Like in most doctor's visits, we perform an extensive interview and a physical exam. We may do additional testing, including performing a sleep study in the sleep laboratory or at home. This actually gives us a chance to see what happens with your breathing, your oxygen, your heart, and your brain activity while you sleep, and helps us diagnose many sleep disorders. I see. So maybe maybe just tell tell us a little bit more about that sleep assessment. So somebody sleeps in a lab or at home. You mentioned, but you're so you're monitoring them actively, and you're you're watching them with video to see when the abnormalities occur and what what it matches with. Exactly. There are two main types of sleep studies nowadays. Uh, one of the more common conditions we look for is sleep apnea, and actually for otherwise reasonably healthy adults. You can actually do a home sleep test where we monitor the oxygen levels, the heart rate, the breathing and the muscle work, all with a special kind of device that you take home, use for one night and drop off the next day for us to analyze. For patients that are sicker or we're concerned about other sleep disorders, we bring them into the laboratory. The sleep laboratory allows us to use extra sensors, including sensors that look at brain activity, that look directly at heart function, like with EKG leads, and also at muscles and, and how they move during sleep. That allows us to, of course, look for sleep apnea, but also look for things like movement disorders. It allows us to help diagnose um, rare disorders like narcolepsy as well. Um, the tests are completely harmless. Uh, they just take some time to do. Okay. So you've mentioned sleep apnea a couple of times. So maybe tell listeners a bit more about what it is and how it relates to pulmonary issues and sleep. So apnea just means lack of breathing. And when we talk about sleep apnea, we're typically talking about the most common type, which is obstructive sleep apnea. And this is a condition where the back of the throat gets overly relaxed when we go to sleep. For some individuals who are built just the right way, and a lot of that is genetic, we can thank our parents for how we look on the outside, but also on the inside. And other factors also play a role, including in some people weight. But when we go to sleep, as everything relaxes and our muscle tone goes down, that back of the throat starts to basically collapse. As it collapses, it can get to that point where the tissues are close enough to vibrate. That's that. <sighs> excuse the sound effects, but that's kind of the snoring that we all love so much. If it goes a step beyond that, it can actually collapse the airway to the point where you're not getting enough air or no air at all. And that's what we call obstructive sleep apnea. When that happens, even though you're sleeping, your body goes into a panic because your oxygen levels are going down. Your body secretes adrenaline and cortisol, sort of that fight or flight response. That sends a signal to the brain to say, hey, fix this. And the brain always does. Even though you're not conscious, you're sleeping, the brain actually activates just long enough to shoot a signal to the back of the throat and <sighs> you're breathing again. Right? And this can happen over and over again throughout the night. Now, as you can imagine, that puts a lot of stress on the body. Both the low oxygen levels as well as the high levels of adrenaline can lead to a significantly increased risk for things like high blood pressure, arrhythmias, heart attacks, even things like stroke and, and diabetes over a period of years. So I don't want anyone thinking something's gonna happen any minute, it won't. This really takes years and years to develop. The day-to-day -day symptoms are a result of the brain having to fix this problem each time. And in doing so, even though it typically doesn't bring you to consciousness, it, it does interrupt your sleep. And so the quality of your sleep is impacted. 
basically you're putting in the hours, but you're not getting the quality. So focus, concentration, short-term memory, mood, all those things can be affected. Okay. So tell me a little bit about how we treat it, right? So things you can do at home at night, CPAP, maybe you talk a little bit about that. And then, you know, you, you mentioned that the palate relaxes. Are there exercises people can do? I'm sure they're wondering that. Um, there are surgical options, but, you know, just maybe briefly go through the array of things that we have to help people. So about two thirds of patients with sleep apnea, in addition to having the anatomy or, or the genetics, if you will, um, uh, there's also uh, overweight and that plays a significant role. So in the long term, uh, a large number of patients can actually cure their sleep apnea with enough weight loss. So obviously that's important for other medical conditions too, if only it was that easy. Um, now, sleep apnea, including with increasing cortisol levels and making you tired, actually makes you gain weight in a lot of individuals, so it becomes even harder. So we try to break that cycle so that while patients are working to get healthier and, and lose weight, we have a number of different treatments. The most common is a device called a CPAP, and CPAP stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. Essentially, it's a fancy air compressor. It's very quiet. It works with your breathing, but it pushes air through a mask to the back of the throat. And by pressurizing that back of the throat, it prevents it from collapsing. The um, comparison I use is back in the day when we used to have you know, those birthday parties for kids in the parks, you may remember those days. Um, we used to have these big inflatables you know, bounce houses. If you ever notice those bounce houses have um, a pump pushing air in because there's air escaping through the seams or what have you. In this scenario, this is the bounce house and the CPAP machine is the pump, if you will, that pushes the air to keep that inflated. This creates an open airway, takes the sleep apnea away and decreases all those cardiovascular risks we discussed. And now your brain doesn't have to rescue you anymore. So the sleep quality improves considerably and you feel so much better. This is still the most effective treatment, but it definitely takes a lot of getting used to. As you can imagine, wearing a mask, um, getting used to the air pressure, it takes most folks about two to three weeks to really break into it. Sometimes it's the third or fourth mask they try, but with perseverance and some realistic expectations, it can really make a significant difference in your health and, and in your day-to-day -day symptoms. Now, there are a couple of other treatment options too. For patients with milder sleep apnea whose jaw will allow it, there's a special kind of dental device which can actually push the lower jaw forward. As that kind of lower jaw moves forward, kind of gives you an underbite while you sleep, it drags the tissues forward with it and can relieve the obstruction. These are made by specially trained dentists with um, uh, our help in terms of making a diagnosis and, and following patients along. Now, as you mentioned, you're absolutely correct. There are a couple of surgical options. There's a classic surgery where they remove the, uh, a lot of the soft palate and excessive tissue from the back of the throat. It's a pretty significant surgery. It's not done quite as often anymore because it's only about 50% successful and it can carry significant risk. Now, one of the newer surgical techniques actually involves an implant. The implant is kind of like a pacemaker. It's a neurostimulator. And it's a small device that's implanted under the skin, which actually shoots an electrical impulse to the muscles of the back of the throat through an implanted um, wire. And every time it, it shoots that electrical impulse while you sleep, it opens the airway. So it actually increases tone with that impulse. 
It's something that you turn on remotely before you go to sleep and you turn off when you when you wake up. Um, it is a successful device, but it's certainly not the first line treatment. The first line treatment is always losing the weight if that's an issue and the CPAP because it is non-invasive and, and very effective. But it's important for folks to know that when for one reason or another, you're not successful with one of those treatments, there are these other treatments that uh, can be very appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for reviewing them. And I think also important for listeners to remember that this is why it's so important to get assessed by somebody who really understands the field, because there's a lot of other things that overlap, uh, whether it's weight management, obesity, we have obesity medicine programs for selected people, there'd be obesity surgery, and these are things we've discussed on other podcasts. But Sam, maybe in, in closing, then you tie it all together. So we've talked about sleep outside of it. We've talked about pulmonary disease. So how does sleep health and pulmonary disease correlate directly just for the listener? Sure. Well, again, pulmonary disease is often associated with poor sleep health and um, the reverse is also true. So, for example, patients with COPD are at significantly higher risk for these what we call sleep related breathing disorders, including sleep apnea. And as you can imagine, when you already start with less lung reserve, each one of those sleep apnea episodes will affect you even greater, will drop your oxygen levels even more and cause more stress on the system. Now, other, other respiratory disorders like asthma can also be worse at night and like COPD can cause worsening symptoms, shortness of breath and wheezing and so forth that can actually wake you up because it makes it more difficult to breathe. So poor sleep health can also be related to pulmonary hypertension, which is a, a different disorder of the blood vessels in the lung. Bottom line is that again, lung problems can make sleep more difficult and poor sleep can make lung problems worse. So if you're concerned, just like you said, it, it's really important to get it checked out. Yeah, I think that's a, a sound conclusion. So folks, if you're not sure how to implement healthy sleep habits, please speak with your doctor or consider making an appointment today with Dr. Gorovich or one of his team or colleagues. It's also important to speak with a health professional if you participate in good sleep practices and yet still continue to struggle with sleep, or if you're concerned that you may have a sleep disorder. Thank you again, Sam. I really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, really very insightful information and valuable advice. To our listeners, again, please make your appointment by visiting my.clevelandclinic.org. Join us for our next episode here on the Health Pulse podcast. Thank you.